This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, right across the country today, gas prices in our area here in Metro Vancouver are in the headlines. I mean, sure, the federal carbon tax goes into effect today. And in Ontario, they are very upset about it. But the average price in the greater Toronto area is still in the vicinity of $1.24.9. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it, right about now, since ours is looking like probably $1.60 right now. In fact, four provinces have the federal carbon tax kicking in today, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and New Brunswick. But don't forget, while they're complaining about their 4.4 cent a liter increase, residents in those four provinces will also get a rebate from the federal government. And we do not because we already had a pre-existing carbon tax. So we're losing out on this big time. Plus, we are paying these huge, huge prices that nobody else in the country is paying. So it's being predicted now that on top of all of that, gas prices in Metro Vancouver this summer could hit $1.65 a litre. That's a lot of money, isn't it? Especially if you're going to be on the road, taking road trips, all of that kind of stuff. So we want to know, is this impacting your driving behavior? I mean, right now we're kind of flirting with that dollar sixty a liter in most places. It's like a dollar fifty four, dollar fifty nine. I think I saw dollar fifty seven on my way in today. But is this impacting how you fill up, or if you fill up? So, in what way are you taking more transit? Are you carpooling? Maybe you're going across the border more to fill up on gas, or is it just gotta continue as normal? Nothing can change. Can't afford to do anything differently, even though it's going to cost you more. Why don't you help us out with our hot question of the day today? Those are the options. You can go online to Simisara980 on Twitter to cast your vote on that. You can also go to at CKNW. But also let us know with our, our buzz line today too, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. What has changed, if anything, as a result of high gas prices for you? And we know that they go up and down a little bit, but I wonder when they do, do you change anything or do you just continue on as normal? You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. We will be talking about this throughout the show today that, you know, here we are right across the country. They're feeling, they're really feeling sorry for themselves in Ontario. And I look at their prices and I laugh and I think you guys have got to be kidding me. This is the fight you're going to pick over this and you're still paying $1.24.9. Come on. So wait, in on our hot question of the day today, email me as well, simi at cknw.com. Well, today is a big day for drivers out there. It is the first day of a major overhaul of ICBC, new caps on pain and suffering for minor injuries, and a whole new system for adjudicating disagreements about those minor injuries. And this is where injuries are below the $50,000 claim level, and so they'll be sent to adjudication to be dealt with. All of this is supposed to be an effort to get the insurance corporation back on the right financial footing, but it's not happening without a fight. Lawyers are not happy with these changes. They are launching a constitutional challenge of it today against all of these changes. And to find out more about this, we're joined now by Ron Nairn, who's the president of the Trial Lawyers Association of BC. Ron, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Simi. Good to be here. The question that I had asked you that I'm curious about is that when it comes to access for justice, right, which is something that trial lawyers say is something that's very important here. Ron, why do we think the costs have gone up so much in the last 10 years? That's something that the Attorney General has cited as one of the reasons for making this happen. Well, first of all, we have to question somewhat the assumption that costs have risen as fast as ICBC is claiming. Um, They have projections and they have uh, losses that they talk about and then suddenly they're 
300 million, 700 million or a billion dollars higher the next day. And yet no one is being fired. No one, no one is being held accountable for those apparent errors. Uh, we question whether ICBC's numbers are reasonable and accurate. And so to some extent, we think that this crisis has been manufactured by ICBC. Um, we do recognize that there are vastly increased numbers of accidents out on the road that have grown far faster than the number of vehicles. And that in itself is a reason for a financial crunch. But the answer isn't to take resources away from people who have been injured through the negligence of others. It's to get the accident rate down. And the government should be undertaking a massive province-wide safety campaign to reduce the number of accidents. Right. What about the number of lawyers here, too? I mean, this clearly is going to impact the livelihood of a lot of lawyers out there. Um, It probably will. But our concern has been from day one for our clients, because our clients are suddenly going to be finding that they're not getting access to justice, that they're not getting complete compensation, uh, and yet they're paying more for their insurance. When you have lawyers, when you have customers and clients that turn to lawyers when they're dealing with ICBC, why do you think they are doing that? Like, what are the stories that you are hearing from people? Well, there's a couple of things. Without exception, people say, I wish I'd never been in this accident. I don't want to be here. I don't want to have this claim. But they find often that they are being mistreated in some way by ICBC And oddly enough, it takes two forms. One, there are adjusters who start basically hounding my clients and calling them all the time, wanting to settle, wanting to get the claim behind them, even though our clients aren't recovered. And then there's another type of adjuster who never seems to talk to our clients and isn't offering the coverage that should be available already under the old scheme for physiotherapy or massage therapy or things like that. I get both of those complaints. Yeah. Okay. That last one sounded very familiar to me, actually. I had that exact same experience. What is going on? I don't know, but I do know that it it seems odd that the solution is to grow ICBC, make it more powerful than ever, and to give it even more responsibility over people's care. That seems to be the exact opposite of what should be happening. Are more of these cases going to trial? Are more lawyers going to court over this? Well, I heard the Attorney General this morning talking about how everything goes to Supreme Court. And, of course, he's really not being fair with that comment. Yes, cases get filed in court, but there are approximately 200 to 300 trials involving ICBC every year at the Supreme Court level. That's all. All of the other cases are resolved through negotiations. So while there's plenty of room for improvement, and we think ICBC... Um, could do a number of things to improve the way they negotiate in order to get fairer settlements faster. Nonetheless, it does work to the extent that we don't have these trials. They're just very rare. How long do you anticipate this uh, court challenge to take? Like, you're not going to be able to obviously stop these changes from taking effect. No, we're not. Um, The changes are going to be in effect, and people are going to start suffering the effects of these changes right away. So when someone gets injured today, they're going to go and talk to ICBC, who's going to start telling them that they have minor injuries and that they're only entitled to a maximum compensation of $5,500 and that if they don't like it, they can go to the CRT. Um, So people are going to be affected by this right away. We will bring the, the challenge on and we will move it through the court system as quickly as we can. 
It's up to the government as well to some extent. They can always frustrate the process, um, much in the same way that they have with the uh, lawsuit that challenges the right for uh, doctors to bill privately and how that's been going on in the courts forever and ever. Right. So we hope to avoid that. We want to get this moving. We want to get a decision from the Supreme Court level at least quickly so that both parties can then take stock and consider where to go next. But to be fair, though, Ron, that $5,500, that's on top of having your treatment paid for, right? Because the key here is to get people treatment. A lot of, And I've seen this happen. People, you know, they think, ka-ching, they're going to make money off of this. But it takes a lot of effort to get better, and some people aren't willing to do that. Well, I've never had a client say, geez, I'm so glad that I was in this accident because of all this compensation I got. People want to get back to their lives. Um, people are frustrated because ICBC doesn't help them do that. And it's odd to think that now, come April 1st, suddenly that that's going to change. Um, it's not. ICBC is still going to look for ways to cut people off. They're still going to look for ways not to honor uh, treatment. The TLABC is all in favor of increased coverage for treatment. We've said that that should be a reform for years. And the two things are not mutually exclusive. In other words, you can have increased coverage for treatment and still the traditional system for compensation for people at the end of the day. There's no inherent contradiction there. Let's get people better quicker that will bring down compensation levels appropriately. But let's have a judge decide what is appropriate. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on this, Ron. Thank you, Simi. Appreciate that. That's Ron Nairn, the president of the Trial Lawyers Association of BC. Well, we know here in Canada, and in particular BC and Metro Vancouver, it's become a favorite place of money launderers. For 10 years now, the warning signs have been there while we have waited for something to be done. But why us? What is it about our environment that has made us so attractive? Well, Jeremy Douglas is the regional representative of the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime in Southeast Asia and the Pacific, thinks that Canada needs to rethink its relationship with some of the countries in Asia. And he joins us now to talk more about this. Jeremy, thank you so much for being here. Real pleasure. Why do you think Canada needs to change its relationship? In, In what way? Well, you know, I think what we're seeing in Canada with the casinos uh, in, in British Columbia, potentially in other parts of the country, is something which we're seeing over here, and the people involved are involved over here as well, actually on a much bigger scale. And if Canada is going to get serious about addressing organized crime and money laundering, I think they need to project a stronger position overseas, work with Asian governments on addressing the organized crime offshore. Um, so that the money laundering doesn't necessarily come over towards Canada uh, and the, the, the organized crime don't take advantage of Canada in that way. Is that what you think is going on? Is it that we don't understand the thinking over there, therefore we're being taken advantage of? Well, I think to, to some extent there isn't the understanding of what is occurring uh, in Asia. And i give you a good example is what, what we see there uh, in uh, British Columbia is what we would call a displacement. Uh, there used to be a lot of money laundering taking place in Macau, which is uh, the gambling hub in Asia. It's much larger than Las Vegas. And uh, there was a big crackdown on organized crime there several years ago. And when that occurred, that pushed uh, a lot of the organized crime activity, the money laundering activity out of that city. And it started, they started looking for places to put their money in. Vancouver, 
for a variety of reasons, it's very attractive to them. But they did the same thing to several countries in Southeast Asia. And those groups now are trans-Pacific. They're really active and projecting themselves to do their business across Asia, but also across the Pacific. So we really need to take the the fight to them, and that means engaging governments that are working to counter them and engaging them in a much more active way than we currently do. And what are those governments that are working to actively engage them? Like, which countries are doing this right? Well, I think, uh, well, Australia is, is one which is now looking at this very actively. The United States is starting to look at it actively. Um, China, to some extent, is looking at this actively. Um, they were the ones that cracked down in Macau. But what I've described to you, this displacement, is kind of like uh, some people in the law enforcement business refer to it as whack-a-mole. Mm. put pressure in one place, they move their operations to another place. What they did was they moved their operations offshore, away from Macau. Vancouver was one of those places they went. But because we're not as active in Asia as other governments, we don't have the relationships in place, or Canada doesn't have the relationships in place necessarily, in Asia that it could uh, to deal with this, we don't have the ability to work with others on the intelligence, on the groups, or to kind of counter uh, those groups as effectively as others. Why do you think that is? Is it because we haven't yet admitted, perhaps, the extent to which this is having an influence here? Well, I think it, this, this did come as a surprise to a lot of people. That's clear from what I read. I'm based in Asia, so I don't really have the whole sense of what's going on there, but I have a pretty good sense of it. And I, what I see in the newspaper is a bit of surprise the last couple of years. Wow, this is really big. Um, but if you were based where I am now in Bangkok and you saw what occurred in Macau a few years ago, you wouldn't be so surprised because as soon as that occurred in Macau, boom, there was this kind of mushrooming out of organized crime and money laundering activity from that city, from southern China into other parts of the region and across the Pacific. So the surprise hit there, and I think people now are suddenly aware that, wow, this has been taking place. That's not to say it didn't take place before, but it's just the intensity of it was that much stronger. And I don't think people were ready for it. They didn't see it coming. What about the spotlight then, Jeremy? Does that do anything? Like the fact that at least we're having the conversation, we know what's going on, we're trying to do something. Does that deter it in any way? I think it does. I think, and I, and I noticed that uh, the government is taking this pretty seriously. There's been some pretty, there's been a number of announcements made. There's been efforts to start coordination. I know that uh, the federal government and the provincial government and others uh, have commissioned some really good work on this. Um, and there's, there's a lot of people looking at steps that need to be taken. What I'm just saying is that I think some of that action has to go offshore. You can't simply do it on the domestic front because what is occurring is international, transnational organized crime groups that are really active in doing this. This is not legitimate money that's being wheeled in, in suitcases into casinos, right? Yeah. So you're going to have to deal with the people that are doing that, and that means dealing with where they come from with that money, and that means taking the fight offshore in some respects. And that's what I said Australia is doing I know that the U.S. Treasury has looked at some of the groups involved, and they're, they're taking some of that fight offshore. So I think there has to be that strong engagement of organized crime in Asia that isn't currently there. It is there to some extent. RCMP and others are doing this. But So a piece of what the government does now should involve that stronger engagement, in my view. Okay, so how do we change those relationships, and which countries are we talking about here? Well, as I said, it's a bit of whack-a-mole, so that means that there's people across uh, the region that, that are going to have to be involved. But the bigger countries, 
where there's concern about organized crime and not just in terms of the money laundering, but in terms of the drug trafficking, which is generating a lot of the money, or other forms of transnational crime. So there's a lot of countries that are very concerned. China is, is one that needs to be engaged and probably is ready to be engaged, to be frank, on this. just has to be done in the right way. Uh, Japan, uh, Korea, uh, Southeast Asian states, there's a, a cluster of states that are now increasingly concerned about organized crime activity in Southeast Asia. And Canada has business ties into all these countries, a lot of two-way trade, a lot of back-and-forth movement of people and, and goods and now money. So really, I think we're looking at a regional engagement, not simply a, a country of focus, but probably several or a large group of countries of focus. And that means probably looking at how do you set up some kind of arrangement with that group of states. And that can be done in a variety of ways, but uh, through the RCMP, through different arrangements, working with us in the UN and with other kind of international like-minded partners. And why do you say that China is ready to be engaged? Like, what's going on there? Well, we're working closely with them. They're they're very active, uh, working with us on uh, drug trafficking issues. Uh, they're working with us on other organized crime programs. So I know that they're ready to have conversations. Um, it just has to be done in a way that is understanding of how they are ready to operate and and how the focus, the type of focus they're ready to accept. Sometimes that isn't understood. I think people don't understand necessarily diplomatically how you need to work with China. And obviously, you can't just work with people on the terms you want to work with them on in the way you want to explain it, but you have to work on it in terms they're going to accept. And I say that they're ready to do that because that's the experience that we have. Um, Mind you, we have the benefit of not being a country. As the United Nations, we're kind of, quote-unquote, politically neutral. So we come at it from a different, slightly different perspective. But we want the same results, which is you know, countering organized crime and money laundering because it's highly unstabilized, destabilizing and, and, and really uh, a negative force in this world. So, um, But I think they're ready to do that, uh, as I said, through some regional strategies, for sure. Do you think BC can do this as a province and, and reach out and do these things, or does it have to be the federal government that steps in here? I think if, if to do what I'm describing, I think would have to be the federal government. I think maybe the British British Columbia could host something, could could be involved to some extent, but I think it really has to be the federal government because that's really their their remit. And this is not just a BC issue; it's, it's kind of countrywide. Obviously, BC is getting the focus and probably deservedly so, but it is going to have to be federal. But I think on the domestic front, there's a lot of steps probably that the British Columbia government could take. Obviously, they regulate the casinos in the province, but and they have to the, regulate the real estate industry and so forth. But um, but when it comes to projecting operations and intelligence exchange foreign governments, they're going to have to take a big lead. And But also doing things like on, a, on the diplomatic front and on the money laundering front in terms of working with you know the, the Financial Action Task Force, which uh, regulates state banks and so forth, they're going to have to take that lead. All right. Well, listen, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us on this. Okay, it's been a pleasure. That's Jeremy Douglas, the Regional Representative of the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Now, he's based in Bangkok, Thailand, and therefore he's been watching kind of what is happening in Canada. Uh, Clearly, from a perspective where across the ocean, he can see that Canada needs to do things differently if we really want to shed this image of being a haven for money launderers. 
We are in the midst of a changing world of sport, particularly the world of amateur sport and competition. And at the centre of that high-performance Canadian cyclist and transgender woman, Kristen Worley. She's the first person ever to successfully sue the International Olympic Committee for a human rights violation and against all odds competed to be an Olympic athlete. Her new book is called Woman Enough, How a Boy Became a Woman and Changed the World of Sport. And Kristen Worley joins us now. Kristen, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, wonderful, Simi. Thank you for inviting me to come on today. Well, tell me about the book then. What was the process like writing this? Uh, it, was, it was actually an incredible journey because actually as much as the book is about my, my time through sport, it's actually a timeline of my life in, in talking much about, um, which I think a lot of people can touch upon, is the, you know, finding your identity through your life. And, and it, sport played a big part of that for me um, as, a, as an adopted child from New Zealand. And um, and how it acted as a as a and I uh, for me as I was going through my identity issues as a child, helping me to deal with issues of bullying um, and kind of under, becoming to understand myself and, my, and who I am. Um, because back in those days, um, we didn't have a lot of language around gender, let alone issues around sexuality in our, in our society at that time. So for me, it was very much uh, you're very much on your own, and so. Um, and also within my family. There wasn't a lot of, didn't have a lot of direction. So sport played a role where it enabled me to have an identity um, mm-hmm. at a very young age, um, to being able me to manage my, my diversity as I was coming to learn more and more about myself. Yeah, when did you decide or when did you realize that you wanted to compete? Well, I, I was always competing in my life. Like as a, as a young person, I was always competing in sport from about age seven, um, sorry, from about age 10, grade, like grade, around grades, grades five, six, seven. Um, and as I discussed in the book, was talking about how I learned how to run and learned how to run quickly, you know, in around age, um, around 12, 13. And I was, became, where I was able to create an identity away from my, where I was getting bullied at school, um, where people could accept me and my peers could accept me. Um, and then I went on to a career in water skiing before my career in cycling um, at the international levels and competing for Canada at the World Championships. And then at a later date is where I decided I wanted, where water skiing was an Olympic-affiliated sport, but it was not uh, an Olympic event. Um, so I was always wanted to go to the Olympic Games and chose a sport which became cycling, as, a, as which I cross-trained for my my. Um, um, for my water skiing at the right. time. When did you start yeah. to run into obstacles and realize that, listen, you were going to have to fight harder than everybody else to compete? Oh, from <laughs> pretty much from... Um, after, it was after my transition, because actually I transitioned... Um, I actually broke my pelvis um, when I came into the sport of cycling at a competitive level. Um, and I actually um, decided at that point, cause the severity of, my, of my, the, the break of my pelvis, I never thought I'd let alone ride a bike, let alone do sport again. And um, so I actually went back to school because I actually took time away. Um, uh, many of my friends had gone on to university at the time um, and, and, the, and the regular, you know, a regular structure way um, of schooling in Canada. But I delayed my university moves because of my um, interest in high-performance sport um, and wanting to go to the Olympic Games. So I actually delayed, delayed it at that time, and I actually transitioned in that time. So it's almost like for me, it's almost like it was like somebody was putting the brakes on for me and saying, you've got to go through this life experience mm-hmm. before you can get on to your next level in sport. So kind of, I kind of look at that with, my, with, the, with the, um, the breaking of my pelvis because when I then decided to um, come back into sport, it wasn't an easy decision because it was after several years. 
Um, and it became an issue for um, when I got involved with a young girl from um, at the time, which many of your listeners may remember in Vancouver, uh, Michelle Dumarask, who right. was a downhill mountain biker back in the early 2000s. And the sporting community came to me um, for help at that time because they knew I'd, I'd been through a transition myself. And what was that like then? You probably thought, oh, okay, this is what this is the next obstacle, right? But then this obstacle proved it, to be pretty big. It was a, it, absolutely, and I, I realized at the time with Michelle that the the because we saw in the media, we saw in sport, not really not knowing how to deal with athletes who have been through transition. And I realized, um, which I realize now, is kind of the, the story for me became. I realized that my my journey was going to be much more than just being an athlete trying to win medals for my country, it actually became more of a, a, a process to where I became kind of the, the educator um, in, in this space and being able through my, my journey um, through uh, afterwards and deciding to come back to cycling um, would be would then 10 years, who would ever thought, like 10, 15 years later um, to be where we are now in the, in the international system of sport through my journey being... Um, the challenges that I went through um, and the oppression I went through through here in Canada and internationally um, that impacted my health and my ability to compete um, uh, ended up being uh, now leading, leading the guidelines and the principles of human rights in, in, the, in the global sports system for all athletes. Well, and what was that like for you? Like in the heat of all of that and that fight and that debate, that discussion, it must have been very difficult for you. In, in terms of which which part are you thinking of? Well, I'm thinking of like yeah, you know, you've got people fighting against your ability, right, to compete. You just want to compete. You just want to do what you've always done. And you've got people telling you no, you can't, and it's turning into this big right. huge thing. What was that like? Uh, it was it was um, it was a it was a big thing to take on because the system of sport here in Canada internationally is runs through the Olymp- the Olympic movement, and there's a function what we call the autonomy of sport, and so. The IOC had created policies, which we now know um, through the legal piece that we worked on here in Canada, which became the kind of the foundation of this discussion, is that their policies were being created by an institution, a private institution in Europe or in Switzerland in this case, being then policies being put out to 206 nations under the Olympic movement um, as being the directive of athletes' participation in, 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 in sport, let alone in Canadian sport. So you had people who thought the IOC had done their homework and had done their research. And, and in terms of the direction to which I was gender tested and, and, and put through several violations, um, that you, we realized that the people that were actually in, in thinking that they were doing right were doing great wrong because there was no science or research. And, and the research to what they had thought was the case was completely 180 degrees to the reality. So there's a multitude of factors here. Um, that became highly complex, but I knew at the time, and I'd met many athletes on my own journey from around the world, um, you know, who are less fortunate countries in areas of South Asia, India, um, South Africa, um, South America, and some Malaysian nations, um, where women were being violated horribly. And I, I just realized at that point in time, as my, kind of my next step, because I ended up working with some of the best experts in the world, because um, I knew this was wrong. And I needed, and, and from my experience, I was able to kind of find that language and that commonality to pull some of the best experts in the world together mm-hmm. to be able to talk about this in a way that, is, that creates a place of engagement for everybody right. and where we've been successful right now. So the issue is, and that's, that's where we've come to now, because now we've actually, through the piece which we were successful here in Toronto, in terms of the legal piece that we brought outside of the court of arbitration in Switzerland, which is the sport court, 
um, which is an arbitration body. It's not a civil court of law, um, and it, where the IOC is dependent on, on, on where there's no civil liability to them. We were successful to bring them in Toronto to discuss these matters with the, with the world, with world cycling, which is the union cycling international, mm-hmm. um, and, and our Canadian sporting system to Toronto to really illustrate what the issues really were. And, and at that point in time, the IOC saw this as a sport issue, but actually we were able to walk them through the science and the research that they didn't have and enabled us to actually show them why this was a human rights violation. Well, I'm sure this is just one of many great and inspiring stories in your book. So, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. Simi, thanks so much, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And absolutely, there's, 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 it's, a much more, it's a much bigger story, and it's really about encapsulating about us all individually and in, in, in searching for our own personal identities. Well, th- um, so this is, just, this is just one aspect of the book. So, well, thank you yeah. so much for your time today. You bet. Thank you so much. That's Kristen Worley, who is an athlete and author. Her book is called Woman Enough, How a Boy Became a Woman and Changed the World of Sport, and it is available now. Well, we have a bunch of different things that we want to talk about from Victoria today, a list actually that we're going to run through with Richard Zussman. But first up, we'll talk about the Trial Lawyers Association of BC. We spoke with them earlier about the changes that are coming into effect, full effect today uh, when it comes to ICBC. So a limit of $5,000 on pain and suffering payouts for injuries that they designate as minor, which would be claims worth less than $50,000. And they say this in combination with the other things that they're doing could save the Crown Corporation something like a billion dollars a year. Trial lawyers don't agree. Their association is launching a constitutional challenge. We had their president, Ron Nairn, on the show earlier. We do recognize that there are vastly increased numbers of accidents out on the road that have grown far faster than the number of vehicles. And that in itself is a reason for a financial crunch. But the answer isn't to take resources away from people who have been injured through the negligence of others. It's to get the accident rate down. And the government should be undertaking a massive province-wide safety campaign to reduce the number of accidents. All right, this is one of several stories we're going to be talking about with Richard Desmond, our Global News legislative reporter from Victoria. Hi, Richard. Hi, Simi. Okay, so trial lawyers are launching this constitutional challenge. What does the government have to say about that? Yeah, so it was not unexpected. The government anticipated it. They believe uh, they're going to win, that their legislation is constitutional. Uh, similar caps have been tested in other jurisdictions, and in every case, the province is one. But what is different here in British Columbia, two things. The loose definition of minor injuries, you mentioned it there. Part of it has to do with value, but it's also the type of injuries as well. And minor injuries also includes concussions that are dealt with uh, in less than three months as well as some other types of injuries and so the trial lawyers are saying that that definition is far too vague uh, and infringes on individuals charter rights there's also the issue around the the resolution tribunal so part of the changes that come into effect today at icbc the province is basically changing the way that you can uh, fight these settlements. And right. previously, we've had these long-term court, you know, court appearances that go on for 
long time. Now they're moving to a civil re- civil resolution tribunal, which is basically online, uh, and you know documents go back and forth, and then decisions are made. So the uh, trial lawyers are saying that system, the resolution tribunal, which doesn't take place in other jurisdictions, is unconstitutional. So uh, basically, those are the main arguments, and the province says, you know, we're ready to take them on in court. Interesting. Okay, so a couple of the stories in Victoria as well today. I heard the conflict of interest commissioner, Paul Fraser, passed away. Yeah, he did over the weekend. Uh, very sad news. Um, apparently a pancreatic cancer. You know, he, he's been an institution here for quite some time, has has been responsible for some significant cases around looking into conflicts, especially when it came to former Premier Christy Clark. Uh, so very sad condolences uh, to his family. Uh, his son was a deputy minister uh, in the Clark government as well. So, you know, a sad day here at the legislature because of the news of Paul Fraser's death. Right, obviously, yeah. So what happens now with that position? Yeah, so the uh, it's an appointment by cabinet. Uh, so cabinet will make a decision. Uh, I haven't got the update yet, Simi. My assumption would be that there would be a deputy or someone that would take charge in the interim. And then cabinet will make the decision uh, to hire somebody. It, it works differently than some of the other watchdogs, like the information uh, commissioner or the ombudsperson, uh, which would be done by a committee. This right. is uh, done by cabinet. So John Horgan's cabinet will will make a decision on, on who should be the conflict of interest commissioner. All right. Speaking of cabinet, let's also touch on money laundering. I know we're covering a lot of stuff today. There's a lot going on, <laughs> Victoria. Let's talk about money laundering here as well, because I understand that the BC Liberals are finally going to turn over those documents that David yeah. Eby said he's been asking for for a long time. Yeah, so months and months and months. The the Liberals made the or sorry the NDP made the request of the Liberals that they wanted to see these documents around money laundering and what cabinet decided. This was after uh, former Minister Rich Coleman uh, made a number of public declarations saying the Liberals did everything possible to deal with the issue of money laundering in casinos, and the NDP said, well, if you did, um, we would love to see the work that you did so that we don't replicate it and so that we can learn from it. Uh, so then finally today. Uh, uh, news has come out that those documents are available. Um, I will hopefully get my hands on those documents soon to have a look at uh, what's being looked at in terms of what we're allowed to publicly see. Some of those are still sworn by secrecy. That was part of the deal that the NDP struck with the Liberals is that we will maintain cabinet confidentiality. We will keep them in secret. We just want to know the work that's been done. This comes to me on the same day. Basically, yesterday was the deadline for Peter German to turn in his right. second report on money laundering. Uh, so we're going to ask Minister David Eby about that in the next half an hour or so. Um, I'm assuming he's seen it. I'm assuming he won't tell us a lot about what's in it. Uh, he has promised to make it available to the public, but it will take time. Uh, the issue with the first German report was that they needed to redact a number of sections that had to do with ongoing investigations, as well as uh, names of people involved. So we anticipate we will get to see this report, which looked into money laundering in the housing market. The first one looked into money laundering in casinos, but... Um, my best knowledge is that the government now has that second German report. Right. Okay. Because, yeah, that'll be a big one. This is the one having to do with uh, housing. Um, housing. Okay. Yeah. yeah and yeah. then and there, the is there going to be laundry. one about real, not real estate, but like um, luxury Ho- cars? And- yeah. So I think this one also includes horse tracks and luxury yes. cars. So th- that's a subsection of the one with real estate and housing. So real estate and housing is the main part of it. But they also said, based on what oh, they found boy. in the first report, they would also look into money laundering in luxury cars and in uh, the in horse uh, track betting as well. All right, that's going to be interesting. Uh, that'll be a good one. So that you say possibly next week. 
Yeah, we we just don't know. I would guess it would be much longer than that, Simi. I think it's going to take a lot of time to go through the lawyers uh, right. to to redact sections. I think the German report. Oh, I'm trying to go off memory. Was at least a month, if not longer, yeah, after I think we it turned was. it in. Yeah. So I anticipate that we'll probably look at a similar time frame for this one as well. Okay, something else for you to ask then, David Eby, when you talk to him <laughs> in about half an hour. And on a final note here, a story that boy got a lot of people talking last week about dress codes at the legislature. This is a quick turnaround. There's a solution to this. There is a solution. So we have this memo now from Daryl Plekis after they've done a preliminary report. They will be changing the rules. So the report uh, reads here, or this um, memo reads, uh, women uh, for women, uh, it needs to be professional business attire, includes a range of contemporary conventional options, which may include sleeveless dresses, sleeveless shirts, and blouses. I'm sure the listeners will wow. remember the story from last week when uh, there was a government staffer who was told to leave the Speaker's Corridor because she was wearing a blouse. Uh, it led to protests here at the legislature for members of the press gallery. Uh, as well as from uh, other government staff. And uh, very quickly, they've changed the rules. The other big thing they've changed here is part of the issue was there were staff from the Sergeant Arms Office who were telling people who work in that corridor what to wear and whether yeah. it was appropriate or not. And I think that was one of the major issues because there were no real defined rules. And now those staff no longer have the ability to enforce it. Each individual is capable of choosing appropriate professional business attire, the memo reads. And the other really interesting part of this as well, and, and this building, the BC legislature, like many other places, has a huge gender imbalance and has for a long, long time, right? This is a yeah. male-dominated workplace. And I think Daryl Pleck has hit the right tone here when he writes, I am committed to supporting gender sensitivity and awareness at the Legislative Assembly, a workplace setting that has been dominated by one gender for far too long. Due to this historical imbalance, I am more than open to accommodating concerns brought forward wow. by many women as a tur- as articulated over the past few days. That's quite a turnaround from the letter that he sent out last week. Yeah, you know, that was, and he explains that in this memo, that last week it wasn't his own thoughts. It was the rules that had been placed for nearly 40 years. He he was criticized pretty heavily for yeah. that memo last week as being, you know, antiquated and, and out of touch. And I think he's explaining today that that memo from last week was just an explanation of the existing rules, rules that most people that work in this building, including me, had never seen. You know, I serve as the press gallery president now, and I've had conversations about dress codes in the past, and I was never told that there was existing rules already. So I think that's part of why there was confusion last week. But now we have clarity and let sleeveless shirts reign. Oh, looking forward to it. Thank you, Richard. Simi, my pleasure as always. Thank you. Have a great day. That's Richard Zussman, our global news legislative reporter over in Victoria. It's not exactly a happy family these days for the caucus members of the Liberal Party in Ottawa. They seem to be battling amongst themselves when it comes to the SNC-Lavalin situation. A couple of caucus members have spoken up and said that they feel that Jody Wilson-Raybould should no longer be in cabinet. Well, an exclusive scrum with Global News on her way into question period, Jody Wilson-Raybould says that's not going to happen. She's not going to resign. Do you plan to stay a member of the caucus? Why would I resign? Uh, because a lot of people are saying that you're doing more to hurt the uh, party than... Uh... I'm just doing the best job I can. Would you say that one more time, please? For CBC, ma'am, for old time's sake. 
Nope, that didn't happen. She said it, and there it is. She said, why would I resign that she's just doing the best job that she can? Uh, Transport Minister Mark Garneau has also been speaking about Jody Wilson-Raybould and the conversation that she taped with the Clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Wernick. Garneau says the recording of those phone calls was totally inappropriate, and he said it was not an honourable thing to do. Top lawyer in the country, and the Clerk of the Privy Council are having a conversation about something very important that it is totally inappropriate to record without notifying the other person. It is not an honourable thing to do. Now that's got to hurt coming from people who sit in caucus with you. So let's get an update now on the situation. Uh, We'll talk to Amanda Connolly, who's our Global News political reporter in Ottawa. Hi, Amanda. Hi, thank you for having me. This is such interesting times. It sounds like it sounds very much like the Liberal caucus members are feeling more emboldened about speaking out. That certainly seems to be the impression that we're getting right now. We're hearing a lot more than we have in recent days from Liberal caucus members right now, especially some, some particularly high-ranking ones, too, saying that they're really not okay with what we saw is, is the case and, and what is happening right now with this, this file. Uh, and again, we're, we're seeing a lot, seems to be a lot of concern from members of that caucus about whether whether there um, is a trustworthy action, I guess you could say, seems to be the sentiment that we're getting right now from Jody Wilson and Rabel to have recorded a conversation with the clerk of the Privy Council. And again, this this really is escalating the discussions that we've seen so far and the comments that we've heard from the Liberals really honing in on that issue of is she trustworthy and do we want her to be sitting in our caucus? What is the process like then, Amanda, if the caucus w- no longer wants her there? So this is kind of a little bit of a, uh, an area where it's a little bit unclear right now. So there really is not one particular clear process or at least a public process for how they would that they would need to follow to remove her from caucus. What we have been hearing, though, in terms of indications from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is that he would leave this matter up to the caucus to decide. He would not be making it himself. So that naturally leads us to assume that there will be potentially a vote in caucus. We know that they're having a meeting on Wednesday, and this is expected to be a big issue up for discussion on, on Wednesday as they meet here in Ottawa. But exactly what kind of format that takes, if there's any kind of appeal process, really is kind of up in the air at the moment. But it's seeming it would, it would likely play out in a vote from caucus saying either yes, we want to keep her in our caucus. There is there is a positive benefit from having d- uh, dissenting voices among us or just say, no, we want to get rid of her. Right. Is this all do you think the fallout from that taped conversation on Friday being made public or were there rumblings of this before? There were certainly rumblings of this before that tape came out, particularly in, in concern from caucus members who were, you know, we were hearing a lot that they were concerned that she might be hurting their chances at re-election, that this was not, you know, politics is a team sport and she doesn't seem to be playing along with the rest of the team right now. But that tape certainly seems to have escalated significantly the comments that we're hearing and the openness with which some members of the Liberal caucus are questioning whether she belongs in, in that caucus. Okay, then. So we have to wait then until their next meeting to see if anything's actually going to happen here. That certainly seems to be the case, yes. Okay, let's talk about the other developments on this. So Gerald Butts also submitted some information to the House of Commons Justice Committee? Yes, so he sent out a tweet on Sunday night, and just just as a reminder, he is the former principal secretary and really the right-hand man to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. They're exceptionally close. He's a very trust, was a very trusted advisor up until he resigned in February in a very a stunning move for, for Ottawa here. No one really saw that coming. But yes, yeah, so he has submitted more, more um, details and, and notes to the Justice Committee, which of course has 
shut down its probe into the matter. And that's perfectly allowable. That's the same thing that Jody Wilson-Raybould did last week. And we really don't know what we're going to see from that right now. Um, what we're hearing is that, again, it's, it could be a range of materials. Usually in this kind of case, it will be things like notes explaining what was brought up in his testimony before the committee on March 6th and things kind of of that nature to sort of stress the points that he made in his testimony. And that was certainly the case with Jody Wilson-Raybould. So we would expect fairly similar, a uh, fairly similar tone of the contents that, that Jerry Butts has submitted here. We don't know when we're going to get a chance to see those, though. Again, uh, what normally happens is that when, when documents come before the committee like this, they have to go through the translation process. That can take several days. They're not released publicly prior to that. So last time we saw about four, four or five days, roughly, before these were released, uh, if, if my, my memory serves here. Yeah. So it's, it's possible that we could see a similar time scope here. This seems kind of crazy, though, because it's just more like uh, everybody's cherry-picking their information and presenting it to the House of Commons Justice Committee. Yeah, that really is, a, I think, a big issue here, is what, what is the metric by which you say we have, the, we have a clear answer in this yeah. case? At what point does the story end? And that really is part of the reason why you know, we're, we're a, little, a little over two months in right now, because there really is no clear way to measure okay, we have all of the facts now, there was clear action being taken or a clear admission that something happened here that maybe wasn't quite right. Just, there's a lot of lingering questions and things that sort of keep trickling out without any, any concrete action to deal with them. Right, and what is the deal with what Pierre Polyev is trying to do? So Pierre Polyev right now is doing something a little bit interesting. He is filibustering debate on a government budget motion. This is essentially a motion asking the House of Commons to um, adopt the government budget. It's a precursor to the actual bill that would implement the budget. And so what we're seeing today is Pierre Polyev, a Conservative MP, and their finance critic as well, has begun talking. He's um, doing, uh, doing a filibuster and saying he's not going to yield the floor in his debate of this, this bill until the government agrees to either to reopen the probe and, and call more witnesses back to the Justice Committee in light of what we heard from Jody Wilson-Raybould in that tape on Friday. It's a little bit interesting how he's doing it here, of course. This is our fourth filibuster that we've seen in roughly the past year with the Conservatives to very mixed results, and their second one on SNC-Lavalin. Normally when they do this, they, tape, they file kind of hundreds of motions and keep people up voting overnight. We're not going to see that in this case right now. This essentially is a filibuster with breaks in between. So the House business stays on as normal and he speaks uninterrupted whenever the matter comes up before the House, which will be over the course of roughly four days. So you'll see a lot of him, but it won't, it won't be to the scale that we've seen in the past couple of cases of filibusters. Right. And there hasn't been any indication, Amanda, has there, that the Justice Committee is going to change their mind and kind of fully reopen this thing? No, really nothing at this point. And again, that was a, that was a big issue when this came up before the Ethics Committee as well. The opposition had asked them to study this matter, given that the Justice Committee had shut down their probe. And the response from the Liberals on the Ethics Committee was, well, Justice is looking into it. We're waiting to see what other information comes forward. And now that we're getting some of that more information, there's still no sign that they're going to reopen that investigation or that probe. We do still have the Ethics Commissioner looking into this. But again, his investigations are generally very long in nature. They can take quite a long time to complete. And so, again, there, there really is no indication as to at what point this might wrap up and have firm right. answers as to what happened. Okay, so then what is the next thing that you are going to be looking for? Is that going to be that caucus meeting on Wednesday? It will. That really is the next big thing on the agenda right here. Of course, if they vote to remove uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould from caucus, it obviously raises questions of do you remove Jane Philpott as well? That's the former Treasury Board president also a very, very prominent member of the caucus who publicly said she had lost confidence in Justin Trudeau and his handling of this and was very vocal in her criticism of that. So I think once you get into removing one of them, the question becomes, well, how far do you go? Where do you keep going next? 
and again, that is part yeah. of the issue here. There's there's no it's kind of a snowball effect. There. There's no sign of it slowing down and there's no sign of, of any stop being put to this in terms of clear answers. All right, Amanda, thank you so much for explaining it to us. Thank you so much. That's Amanda Connolly, our global news political reporter in Ottawa. Oh, yes. Look at the calendar today. You know what the date is. It's April 1st. Sure. Yeah, you've got some bill payments that are due probably. But it's also the day where everybody thinks they're a comedian and they've got some kind of practical joke that they want to play on people. There have been some good ones. Don't get me wrong. There have been some good ones. And we're going to go over some of them right now with the help of our contributor, Claire Allen. Hi. Hey, Simi. I fell for one. I fell for one too, and I'll get we'll get okay. to it. We'll Should get to first. Well, if you want, sure. Uh, I fell for this one. I think, and I was asking myself, how? How did this happen? How did you fall for this? And I think it's because I wanted it to be true. Mm-hmm. And this has to with money laundering. We were talking about this an hour ago with Richard Zussman from Victoria. We were talking about how the BC Liberals, Andrew Wilkinson, was going to turn over the documents that the government had been looking for. They, the, like, you know, they said we're going to work together. We're going to work together. So I was like, this is yeah. great. I know. Talking about adjustment, and then like literally twenty minutes later, find out it's an April Fool's joke. Which that one was really sneaky. That's because mean. There was no link that led you to something that said like, oh, it's April Fool's Day. It had like a media contact with a number and. There's nothing there that really gives it away. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I, mean, I know. Maybe the jury's still out. Maybe that no, is real. no. It's definitely <laughs> it's definitely fake. But I just wanted so badly to think, oh, finally, some cooperation on wow. money laundering. We're so all getting along. I, I know. No, no. Sorry, Sammy. Okay. I'll have to wait for next year. Maybe <laughs> some of them are obvious, but some of them are obvious and very clever. And you're going to go over some of those. Some ones, of them so. are very clever. You're right. So remember, a couple of months ago, you and I were chatting about the people that I interviewed that had gone to that disaster festival known as the Fire Festival, yes. <laughs> which also could have been April Fool's prank if you think was about sad. it. But, but it was real. Yeah. Um, yeah so, you know, WestJet full, pulled a fast one on a few people this morning when it announced that it was set to launch the Flyer <laughs> Festival, <laughs> the world's first premium in-flight music event. The actual experience is something that is impossible to put into words. But if we did, those words would be world's first premium in-flight music festival. Welcome to Flyer Festival. A transformative journey. Prepare to be transformed. An immersive music festival at 35,000 feet. It's immersive because you're there. On WestJet 787 Dreamliner. It's the new one. An event that's all about the music. Models. Flyer is an experience and a festival. I love that commercial. It reminds me very much of the movie Zoolander. Yeah, definitely. And it's actually much longer than the 30 seconds we just played. And it is so funny. And you know what's sad? You and I were just saying that somebody probably fell for it. For sure. Searching the WestJet site for this flyer festival. I'm sure there was somebody who saw that commercial today, that promo, and was like, I'm going to this. Sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So sadly, that was an April Fool's prank for anyone who thought they wanted to party at 35,000 feet in the sky. No dice. Sorry. You can't go. It is a joke. Um, So that one was pretty funny. The video is hilarious. And uh, the, um, the vice president of marketing and communications, Richard Barton said, since the dawn of flying, humans have yearned for an immersive music festival at 35,000 feet. (laughs) WestJet is giving the people what they want, an experience that will be impossible to put into words. If we could put into words, those words would be world's first premium in-flight music festival. 
Somebody's going to try something like this, right? Ugh. Somebody's going to have a concert on some super big air. Like, it's just ridiculous. It sounds like the flight from hell for Love me. it. Love um, it. So every year on April Fool's Day, the RCMP or various police uh, forces, they kind of uh, get in on the yeah. fun. I thought this one was really cute. The, I love this one, by the way. This is my favorite one just because it's adorable. It's very cute. So they announced, the BCRCMP, they announced that they were launching a new division, Police Cat Services. Excellent. That's like my cat when she wants something. Well, so let, like, well, police dogs, me. but police cats. Well, let me tell you what they're, what they're going to be doing, this force, oh, this make-believe force. Cat burglary, burglary catching perpetrators, <laughs> uh, financial fraud, tax cheetahs. Oh, Love a it. Good one. Love it. Uh, use of force training, claw enforcement, catnapping, very popular with firefighters, and fingerprint and blood spatter, fur enzics. Oh man, they were clever. They're That's very good. clever. There's a lot of comedians on that force. I got a chuckle. <laughs> slow, slow day for them, perhaps. I, but. I guess, or they just been planning this since last Ooh, year. I yeah. got a chuckle out of it. Now so, you also fell yes. for one, and so I felt victim to April Fool's prank. I thought I like I woke up this morning and I was like, oh, it's April Fool's, Claire. Be you're aware. in the clear. Like yeah. you're fine. You're already you already know this is going on. Don't even don't even worry about it. No, too late. I came into work, opened my email. You know who got me? Who the perpetrator was? Who? Our company, Chorus Entertainment, got me what? with their April Fool's prank. Which one? You may have deleted this email to me. I usually, I was like, <laughs> what is she talking about? I usually delete a lot so of the company emails. So we have these emails. web seminar series that get sent out uh, all the time. Okay. And I thought this was real, which may might be a very sad statement about where my mind is. But it said, introducing a new webinar series, Handshakes 101. And I, I thought this was real. Wait a minute. You thought our company was going to host a webinar series on how to mind, properly handshake? How, how how many times have you like take, oh. gone to shake someone's hand and they have a it's horrible awful. handshake? It's awful. I yes. thought this was a real problem because I think you, you know, do think it's a real I, problem. Well, I know it is because I've shaken a few hands that are like very loose, and so <laughs> I was like, "Wow, Course is really getting in front of this problem. That's so great." And then I was reading this. It was, listen to this. It sounds legit. First impressions are critical. In fact, research suggests that human beings develop a first impression within seven seconds of meeting each other. As a result, your handshake can convey a lot about your personality. Too firm might appear aggressive or stubborn. Too limp, though, and you might give people the impression that you are not assertive or have difficulty making decisions. Hey, that sounds true. Anyway, so they said today, April 1st, should have been the clue right there, from 1 to 2 via live webcast. So you were all set to do this. I just was like, wow, this is great. It says instructor Hannah Anderson will discuss tips for perfecting your handshape that include grip, latitude, when to let go, and what to do with the <laughs> other hand. And none of that rang a bell for you. I even said it out loud I was, to people in the producer pit. I was like, wow, look at this. Isn't that interesting? So, <laughs> someone was like, Claire, it's a get a hold of yourself. <laughs> oh, you poor, now I don't feel so, so bad. Sad. Now I do not feel so bad about the one that I fell but for that here. That was a really good one, I will say. Okay. Or either I'm just really stupid. <laughs> no, you have hope for handshakes I in know. the world. I thought that we were going to help people. Anyway, <laughs> another, another one, one, which was just funny and you know hopefully people don't fall for this is a local brewing company Phillips Brewing and Malting Company said that they have taken the wheel and are creating ride hailing service called 
Fuber. And so what it was on Twitter, they said, Vancouver's new ride-sharing service. The app is still in development, but Vancouverites in need of a car a ride can call Dave on his cell, and then they give his number. Responses may be a bit delayed as he needs to safely park before checking his messages. <laughs> Doesn't want to get distracted. I hope that's ticket. not a real phone number, because that's going to be filled up with people I'm calling sure today. And so the picture was Dave, you know, a nice-looking gentleman with with quite the beard. Quite the beard. Quite a hipster, I will say. Driving around what looks like a very old Nissan uh, with a unicorn horn on it that was obviously made from a pylon and some lightning along the side. So you were going to be riding in style. However, it was a joke. Oh, that's unfortunate. I also had an email from somebody just giving you the heads up that obviously you don't watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine. No. Because on that show, Santiago went to a handshake seminar. And maybe that's where this joke came from. I'm sure it did. But (laughs) I think it's actually a needed seminar. So next year, we can look forward to you putting on a handshake seminar. You know, got to look people right in the eye, shake the hand, not too firm, not too loose. Okay. What is that? Do you think the best time that you've ever gotten like? I can't think of another time. April Fool's Day. No. I can't think of another time where I felt as dumb as I did this morning. (laughs) Congratulations, then. (laughs) April Fool's Day was one. Well, before we talk real estate here, I just got to give kudos to all the emails that I got on April Fool's Day pranks. I think I have a winner. I think I really do. Uh, This comes uh, to us from Ken from Vancouver. Ken said, today I helped my identical twin brother prank his coworkers at his office. I sat at his desk pretending to do work and nobody clued in until my brother actually waltzed in and then had a loud conversation with a co-conspirator. And only then he said, did the people around the cubicle realize that there were two of us? And he said the best reaction was downstairs where the receptionist literally did a big double take after getting fooled. His expression was priceless. Ken, I wish I had seen that because that would have been fantastic. Good one. Uh, Send me at cknw.com if you want to keep those coming. There's some really good stories out there. Uh, Let's talk about real estate. And unfortunately, this is not an April Fool's Day prank. The situation does not look good uh, in the month of March for Greater Vancouver Home Sales. According to Steve Soretsky, he's crunched the numbers And he says, we had the worst March than we have had since 1986. And Steve Soretsky joins us now, realtor with Sutton West Coast in Vancouver. Hi, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, you crunched the numbers. You tell me what you found. Yeah, so just looking at uh, historical data, I sort of had to go through an old database just to to, kind of go back that far. But uh, yeah, it looks like March sales figures. I know the board will probably release those, um, I guess, is tomorrow or, or, or the third or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it looks like there's the fewest home sales we've had uh, across all property types since March of 1986. Okay. And was that for everything, as you were saying, like single, like detached single homes, the whole thing? Yeah. So, like, if you take, like, single-family home sales combined with, like, condos, townhouses, duplexes, so all basically all, all property types across greater Vancouver, uh, region. It was, uh, yeah, fewest home sales with just over 1,700 sales. Was that all across the region or were some areas worse than others? Uh, that was all across the region. So that's like the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, like the the area that they collect. So it's basically like, you know, Vancouver, Richmond, Burnaby, uh, like all the Coquitlam, all those areas sort of combined uh, into into one. So, yeah. Okay. Um, with with yeah, your expertise there, when you look at that, Steve, what does that tell you? What's happening out there? Uh, well, it seems to be obviously more widespread. I mean, like, you know, I think the, the, the fallacy that, you know, people were under the impression that it was only going to be concentrated to the single family housing market. And certainly that's been like the hardest hit market. But uh, even if you to take uh, March home sales, just specifically for condos, which are obviously more affordable, 
uh, for your for your local person. Uh, you know, those hit an 18 year low, so it was the worst March uh, since 2001, just for condo sales as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think just a broad based slowdown that's really stemmed from the top, right? I mean, if detached houses continue to correct, I mean, that obviously will eventually trickle into the condo market, and, right. and that's what we're seeing is. Because prices, whether you're looking to buy a $4 million house in the west side or you're trying to buy a one-bedroom condo uh, in the city, uh, you know, they're all seeing price pressure and prices coming lower. Yeah, what is the discrepancy then between list price and what these properties are actually selling for? Uh, it's Honestly, it's all over the place. I think that's one of the biggest problems. I mean, there's a reason why there's so few sales, and it's basically buyers are wanting discounts they feel that the, you know obviously the market has softened quite a bit and, and they want they don't want to pay top dollars and you have a lot of sellers that are emotionally stuck on sort of older prices and yeah. and there's this disconnect between what you know what buyers are willing to pay and what sellers are asking and that's really why you have no sales so do you think there are buyers out there but they're just not willing to pay the prices that the sellers are putting out there yeah, for sure. There's definitely like a lot of buyers in the sidelines. It's just, uh, I mean, this is sort of typical. It's not like a Vancouver thing. If you go back and look at any other housing correction that's happened, uh, you know, things always shape up like this. There's always a, a dry, dried up in, in sales volumes. And, and it just takes a long time because people are emotionally attached to their home values, right? Everybody thinks that their house is worth, you know, more than, than what it probably is realistically worth. And, and so it's just coming over those that emotional state to get them down to to real thick prices. Right. If this continues, though, Steve, if we continue to see such few sales out there in the market, does that, do you think, eventually create some pent-up demand? Uh, yeah, but I mean, I think the problem is, is realistically, you know, unfortunately, and, and it's just the reality of the case, is there's a, there's a knock-on effect to having a 33-year low in home sales. Uh, and that's going to come with a, a slow, a significant slowdown in the economy. Uh, you know, we're certainly seeing that in the real estate sector, in the construction sector, I can tell you housing starts are, have already started to drop off and they will take a significant drop off this year because developers are having a tough time um, hitting pre-sale targets in order to actually get off the ground. So um, I think with that, uh, you know, you'll probably see some slack in the labor market as well. Okay, so you think that's now we're finally going to see that? Because it seemed to me that the market seemed to be like hanging in there and hanging in there. People kept thinking it was going to turn around. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I you know, speak specifically for for detached sellers uh, that you know have been sort of holding out, holding out, holding out. You know, thinking that uh, you know fall twenty eighteen was going to be the time that they were going to have a house sold, and then it was like, okay, well, let's wait for the spring market. Well, we you know we're in the first month here at the spring market, and and uh, you know thirty three or low is is obviously not an encouraging sign for for people trying to sell. Right. So does it look? Does that seem? When you look at the next couple of months, though, do you think it's going to stay low? Yeah, I mean, real estate, uh, real estate is very sticky. Like once there's a trend in place, that trend is is in place. It's not like a stock market where you know it fluctuates yeah. on a month to month basis. Uh, so particularly, we have the same policy backdrop, right? You have a stress test that's in place. There's no desire to remove that. Uh, BC government is intent on keeping their policies in place. So. There really isn't any sort of regime shift coming uh, that signifies why the housing market should all of a sudden reignite. Do you, when you look at those different mechanisms then that were put in place, is it the stress test, do you think, the federal rules that made the biggest difference? I think it's just honestly like we can't pinpoint it and say it's one thing. I think it's just a multitude of factors. Uh, you have like a global economic slowdown. Uh, you've had higher interest rates. I mean, you know, Canadian debt service payments are at record highs. So you, and then you have 
you know, so you have the Chinese money pulling back, you have mortgage stress tests, you have EC government uh, taxes, uh, which so I think all of those factors combined uh, are obviously weighing on the housing market. So in any area, did you see any kind of a bright spot? Uh, well, I would say like, you know, like, I mean, realistically, you know, as most people I think can attest to is in terms of like price declines and like real slowness, like, yes, we have an 18 year low in condo sales, uh, but there's still like pockets that are obviously performing better than other ones. So like price declines basically range anywhere from 10% down from the peak to 40%. So uh, one bedroom condo in the city is probably down 10, 12% from its peak price a year ago. Uh, whereas the declines can be as bad as 40% for a, a luxury home in West Vancouver. So it really ranges anywhere, uh, you know, between there, right? I mean, like a house in East Vancouver with a basement suite hasn't corrected as much as, say, again, like a luxury house on the West Side has. Right. Okay. So it's all over the map is what you're saying. Yeah, it's all over the map. I think there's a real, like, price discovery thing here. I think the thing that I find interesting is you have houses. I mean, like I said, you have houses in, like, West Vancouver they are down you know, 30, 35, 40%. And then you have like maybe a 10% correction in like Langley and Abbotsford. Um, You know, to me, that doesn't really make sense to have houses priced at a million dollars in Abbotsford when you can get a house on the east side of Vancouver for 1.3. Right. So that that correction still has to, all those rises that we saw in the suburbs, then you think those still have to come down. Yeah, exactly. And to be honest, I mean, uh, the reality is, is it's, it is pretty much widespread across BC. So, like, you know, I speak with clients and realtors, you know, across across the province. And you look at uh, Victoria, for example, like the the you know Vancouver Island, is, their sales volumes have completely dried up as well, but their prices haven't moved yet. So you still have like really high inflated prices over there. Yet the Vancouver housing market is, is under uh, quite a significant price correction. So I think all these markets are just sort of adjusting. Um, you know, as we, as we go, right. sort of. All right. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Appreciate that. That's Steve Soretsky, realtor with Sutton West Coast in Vancouver. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone. And for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.